Over the last couple of days, I have been exploring uh, a truly extraordinary book called Trans Like Me, Conversations for All of Us. The book is written by C.N. Lester, who is British and well-known as an LGBTI activist, uh, also a musician, also a writer, co-founder of the first national queer youth organization uh, in Britain. C.N. Lester is an international trans educator, working hard to help all of us better understand the experience uh, of those uh, who are trans and helping all of us understand what we can do to, in a sense, make life better for them and how they can make life better for us, how we can all be enriched by, in a sense, enlarging our understanding of the human experience and of, of what it means to embrace that which separates us or differentiates us from others, as well as uh, understanding those those fundamental traits that we all share as human beings. I found myself thinking about all of this and much, much more uh, as I read this terrific book, which is published by Seal Press. And I'm very grateful to have uh, C.N. Lester with me on the phone to talk about the book, Trans Like Me, Conversations for All of Us. C.N. Lester, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you very much for having me, all the way from a very gloomy London. Well, it's very gloomy here in southeastern Wisconsin as we're recording <laughs> this, so so we're uh, we're uh, akin in that respect. I want to mention that uh, we've, uh, on this program, uh, ap- approached this topic any number of times. I will say, however, uh, just about as much as the very first time I uh, approached this topic, I find myself... Uh, grasping for the right words to say, the terminology mm. uh, with which not to offend or mislead. And uh, mm. one of the things I appreciated in your book was a moment where you talk about how those kind of things happen. And the most important thing for us to do is act with kindness and humility and not be <laughs> too overly distraught about those <laughs> moments when <laughs> the wrong word sort of uh, comes out of our mouths. I imagine you are really speaking from rich experience when you uh, give us that uh, encouraging word. Absolutely, and I think uh, it sort of it's upon all of us to recognize the times when we do that to each other, trans or not. You know, I know I've put my foot in my mouth more often times than I would like to, uh, and it's learning, you know, what I've done best by other people and what they can do best by me, and that sensation that we're all learning. And if we are genuine in wanting to do better by each other, then it's okay to slip up and then keep on improving. Hmm. I think before we go any further, I want to acknowledge uh, something that you and I have in common, uh, namely music. Uh, Mm, I was interested to hear some more from that. (laughs) In my real life, or my full-time job apart from the radio station, I am uh, a music professor, and I coordinate Mm -hmm. the opera program uh, where I also teach private voice, and you uh, are a mezzo-soprano and have That's the one. sung a great deal on the, uh, on the operatic stage and uh, uh, sung roles, I believe, that uh, were originally conceived for castrati and travesti singers, and, and you talk mm-hmm. about that to some extent uh, in a very interesting chapter in your book. 
ahead of us talking about that, which I think we'll save for a little later in the interview, I want you to uh, expound on something you talk about in terms of of how the way you think of yourself as trans is in some ways similar to the way you think of yourself as a musician, as it being, mm. in a sense, just about as fundamental to who you are. I would love to hear more about the way in which that is true and has been true for you. I mean, I think what I find very interesting there is when I sort of say, oh, I'm a musician or I'm, you know, I'm a singer, I'm a composer, people don't tend to stop and say why. There's this idea, it's what I do. And so by being something that I do, people can recognize it without trying to pull it apart. Uh, unless, you know, they're into music psychology, which is a whole other kettle of fish and very interesting. Um, but when it comes to being trans, when it comes to being gender nonconforming, I'm really talking about the experiences of my life. Uh, but people can stop and say, you know, are you sure? You know, um, are you making that up? Um, how can you prove that you're trans? Or, you know, I just don't believe it's a thing. And, you know, I don't know why I'm trans. I don't know why somebody else isn't trans. Um, but regardless of the whys and the hows of how that came to be about, it's my daily life. And it's been my daily life for a very long time. So um, I definitely see it as, as just a it's just a thing. It doesn't need necessarily fancy language or um, long you know, sort of convoluted explanations just to be treated as a fundamental part of my daily existence. Hmm. And that's really true, isn't it? That uh, that if that if you said uh, uh, I'm a musician, I love music. Uh, music makes me happier than anything, or whatever you might say. Uh, uh, it would be a very strange person who would be moved to ask you, "Are are you sure? Are you sure about that?" <laughs> uh, I mean, it it would be very much taken at face value. But this is something that seems to be a very uh, it, we're we're in a different arena somehow when we are talking mm. about the trans experience. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about when this became, first started to become clear to you that mm. you were, uh, in, 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 at least in this respect, uh, someone different from at least most of the people uh, around you? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like a lot of trans people, you have that experience growing up of, there's that old, that sort of old cliche of being trapped in the wrong body or born in the wrong body, and I don't like to use it because I actually think that by becoming aware of the ways in which we can shape our bodies and sort of inhabit them with compassion, um, with a sense of, of maturation and growth, we can really start to feel that we are in the right bodies. We just need to be able to to control the the wheel a little bit more. Um, But certainly, you know, entering puberty uh, as a teenager, there was a strong sense of, hang on a second, something is not right here. And you can really feel like the only one in the entire world. So I definitely didn't realize that other people had that same experience. And I would go to bed at night sort of with this fantasy that I would awake in the morning somehow changed. And I knew it was ludicrous, but but I had that desire all the same. And many trans kids report talking about praying to be changed in the night or wishing that, that something would be different. 
Um, and I sort of started desperately trying to find out other people, and eventually I, I came to writers like Kate Bornstein, uh, Leslie Feinberg, later Susan Stryker, who you've had on the program, and realized there was a word for people who did experienced uh, similar sensations, and that was trans. And suddenly I could do something about it, and I could learn more about who I was, and I could make peace with myself, and I could start living a life that felt authentic and comfortable. Hmm. It was so interesting to read in the chapter Finding My Voice about uh, what an enormous difference it made to be able to find language, to find mm-hmm. uh, terms uh, t- to help you make, make sense of this. The, the, the opening paragraph of this chapter says this, before I learned that there were words for people like me, I knew what I was looking for. I just didn't know how to capture that in a way I could fit into my world and hold on to, to put my feelings into language. Without language, those feelings couldn't solidify. I find that so interesting. I mean, and even beyond the topic that we're specifically focused on right now, uh, that probably for all of us in all kinds of aspects of our lives, whoever we might be, that language is this tool by which our ideas about ourselves in the world, in a sense, can coalesce. And I suppose sometimes for good and sometimes for ill, but <laughs> but I don't think we often think about the powerful role that language plays in our lives. I, mean, I really enjoy that sort of about is a tool to affect change. It affects change in, in you and in others. Um, and while I, I'm definitely of that sort of 90s kid where I don't like being boxed in or, or labeled too much, at the same point, if I, if I haven't got a word to say this is my experience, then I just can't communicate experience, not to other people, but crucially, not to myself. And building blocks of conversation, the power we have to, to say to another person, you know, I like you, or, you know, I love you, or this is me and that is you. Um, and sometimes there is this pressure put on trans people. People will say to us, well, do you have to do anything about it? Do you have to say anything about it? Um, and I think that's a really narrow way of looking at ways that we can learn about each other through self-expression and through conversation. Hmm. I also appreciate these words from that same chapter, which I think kind of speak to what you were just saying. My words are a challenge to the people who would strip my experiences from me. What can be described can be communicated and made real, becomes a shield against that invisibility and dissolution. I mean, without without those words, uh, it, it, it becomes easier to sort of slip into the background or be relegated to the background. And we should say that at, at this point in the chapter, you're actually tackling a question you tell us you are asked quite a lot, which is namely, uh, if why, why even fuss with terminology at all? Mm-hmm. Would, isn't it better for us to just live in a world without any of these terms at all? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think aggravating to me with this question, called the names. I mean, it was, I was 15 before I found out about the word transgender, but I had been called a freak and, uh, you know, a faggot and a dyke, 
for many, many years before that, um, you know, we, we have words levied at us. And the idea that we could just do away with a more positive or a more neutral term, how allow ourselves to be shaped by the people spewing hatred at feels like a very um, a very narrow way of looking at how we're constructed and how we see ourselves. We're speaking with C.N. Lester, and her book is called Trans Like Me, Conversations for All of Us. And I would just note there, for example, that I use the gender-neutral pronoun they, so rather than she or her or his or him, uh, I would say their book. So mm. again, just a, just a moment of language there. Very good. You talk uh, about in, in the chapter where you discuss your childhood, um, you talk, first of all, about the way that your, your parents did gender. <laughs> and, uh, and, and while it's, they, they would not say they did everything perfectly, you probably would say they didn't do everything perfectly. And yet, uh, at least for the most part, you, you feel like they, by and large, did gender well in your home. And I think you, you count yourself fortunate that uh, you, you had and have the parents that you do. Can you just say a word about how they, in a sense, did gender and uh, how they handled uh, this uh, experience of yours? I mean, I think they would sort of be the first to admit it, it wasn't because they had any special knowledge or insight. Uh, it's not that they went into raising me and my brother with a, with a handbook saying, so what if your kid is trans? It was that they approached it, uh, I think, with an open-mindedness and a willingness to accept that their children might be different from how they'd expected or might have something to teach them along the way. Um, so there was just a general sense of openness, so a complete lack of sexism. Um, so, you know, certainly when I came across sexism and, and misogyny and, and hate in uh, public life, sort of at school or in the street, that was very shocking and something I could go to my parents with and say, please explain this to me, help me understand this. Um, and they were very good at not limiting things into boy girl, you know, boy things or girl things, um, but instead just sort of saying, you know, open your eyes to what's around you. Um, I think they were always more, uh, they always cared more whether we were learning and whether we were um, sort of setting ambitions and goals for ourselves and whether we were being kind and learning about who we were and trying to be sort of moral people rather than we fit into certain gendered roles. Hmm. Um, and that was really, really lovely, I have to say. I think it, it created a space at home where you didn't have to worry about being judged Mm. Uh, unlike school environments, which can be so pressurized. Right. I want to make sure to uh, give you an opportunity to talk about your brother, Jonathan. Uh, mm. Some of the most moving moments uh, in the book are when you talk about uh, the two of you and how very, very close you were and of the many different ways in which uh, your brother, Jonathan, made a very powerful difference for the better in in your life mm. as you were especially f kind of first grappling with a lot of this mm. uh, I mean it's very interesting to me people will often say you know what what can I do to be an ally to trans people and you know obviously there are there are specific things you can do um, I definitely say you know contact your local representative and, and talk about the importance of trans issues talk to your friends about it and, and stand up for our rights but 
first and fundamentally, just love the trans people in your life. Just be there for them. And my brother, uh, who died of brain cancer 10 years ago, was just the most loving, uh, funny, adventurous person. Um, and I just knew he was my best friend. And there was nothing I could do to let him down and nothing I could do where he wouldn't love me. Um, and that just gave us this amazing sort of space and the support um, just to be me and not ever have to doubt that I would have someone by my side. Um, so, yeah, if, if you can do anything, just, just let the people in your life who are maybe a trans and be questioning gender or confused as to who they might be, know that however they turn out, whoever they you know discover themselves to be along the way, that they'll have a buddy who can hang out with them and make them laugh. I mean, that's, you know, it's your, it's your person who, when the chips are down, is there saying, you know, I've got your back. Hmm. What I especially appreciated as you described uh, your, your, your relationship was that uh, you also appreciated uh, the ways in which uh, your brother depended on you and mm -hmm. called for things from you, which I suppose, among other things, uh, helped sort of dismiss the notion that he was the normal one, you were the abnormal one, you were the mm -hmm. one who was fragile and in need and bearing all these burdens and... And fortunately, mm -hmm. uh, he, the normal sibling, was uh, kind and compassionate, and so on. I mean, that 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 would be one scenario, but that's not the scenario here at all. It was no. a very rich and equal relationship, and a relationship okay. in which he was not afraid uh, to lean on you and draw mm -hmm. all kinds of things from you. Can you just say a word about that? Of course, yeah, so it's. A truism, but for a good reason, that one of the most powerful things you can do uh, in a relationship is say that you need the other person, and you don't you don't need them in a kind of abstract way, but in a very fundamental, like, hey, you know, I would like you to teach me this thing, or I could really use your help with this, or I'm scared of X, Y, Z, maybe I'm scared of heights, and I, I physically need to you at this point uh, and having you know certainly a younger sibling who you know could I teach him how to play the piano or could I teach him how to play the guitar and then when he got a little bit older you know could he come visit me at university and could I help him with his eyeliner so he could look really goth you know at this point I think it was lots of my chemical romance so emo more than goth um, and you know it, it was things like that that just make you feel so valuable that as you said it, it's not someone looking down at you with a kind of pity but it's a really equal relationship of mutual care uh, and a mutual sense of support and responsibility for each other which allows you to grow in in a sense of self-worth as well as a sense of sort of compassionate care mm. you write these words it is a very powerful thing when you feel at your lowest point to know that someone else depends upon you, not in a way that burdens you with expectations or makes you feel ashamed for not being perfect, but in a way that says, your life makes my life better. Thank you for being here. No matter how terrible, how disposable I felt, Jonathan gave me constant reassurance that who I was had value. In that mutual exchange of care, I felt the proof that his world, at least, was better for the fact that I was fighting to stay alive. I just love those words. And again, uh, they are true even beyond the arena of the trans experience that we're specifically mm. talking about today. And I don't know, maybe that I, I, I find myself struck by how much 
in in your book uh, actually has application even beyond this particular arena that it's mm. it's a very human story that uh, all kinds of people whether trans or not uh, c- can relate and 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 draw draw uh, inspiration from thank you so much and i i guess that's one of the things we we really wanted to try and do sort of uh, me and, and my publishers you know trans so locked in a really narrow joke or in a film it's a tragic story um and, I mean, that just seems ludicrous from, from my life. If I look at all the trans people in my life and all the people who aren't, you know, we're, we're full, breathing humans. We're existing in every aspect of, of, of humanity, of daily life. And we have so much to reach out and share with each other. And it, it really does seem to me a tragedy um, that we put it to one side as like a special exhibition or, you know, something difficult that we have to work through rather than just equal human beings who can enrich... Uh, a broad narrative of, of what it means to know yourself, what it means to try and work out who you are and be authentic to that self and, and work between, you know, what you know inside and what society says you can be. Hmm. I mean, those are things we all grapple with. Those are, you know, pretty human experiences. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, people often ask, you know, well, you know, what's the one thing we could do to make the world better for trans people and you feel like saying we'll just make it better for people full stop that's it (laughs) (laughs) right right absolutely we're speaking with cn lester and uh uh talking about the book trans like me conversations for all of us i meant to ask you at the top and i i forgot Uh, let me ask you now about this intriguing subtitle conversations for all of us uh, tell us what what are behind those words. I think it was a sense that at at the time, certainly that we we were going to press and and uh, or, or sort of going to print. A lot of the books about trans people are either sort of just a memoir, and memoirs can be amazing, but but you know with with only a personal focus, or else a more academic style book. And while I love reading Judith Butler. I don't read Judith Butler for fun. <laughs> I certainly don't read her, you know, when I'm, um, you know, on a on a bus or a train or before bed. And we, you know, actually, we want to do something which is more conversational and is more of a sense that we are all being invited to the table. So it's not an academic speaking to you from a position of authority, um, but neither is it something. It's just one person's story which you read, but don't necessarily sort of work back into. Instead, we thought if we we do this collection of essays on the main misconceptions around being trans, maybe we can try and make it more of a two-way dialogue in a sense that, you know, we're asking you questions about who you are and what you think. And my ideas are out there, but, you know, they're not necessarily the only ones. (laughs) And there's space to disagree. There's space to um, sort of move away and come back in uh, and hopefully leave the reader with something that they can ponder and and sort of structure for themselves Mm. rather than just uh, taking its writ. Right. I appreciate the fact that your book, uh, although it is very much taken up with your own personal story and uh, and the experience of of trans persons in in our own time, uh, but you certainly share with us uh, some rich historical insights as well. And... uh, one of the most basic facts you share that uh, I think is really important to, to hear a little more about 
is is the idea or the, the that that our basic sort of binary model of two genders, two sexes, is a relatively modern invention, and that the closer we look at history, the more complicated the understanding of gender actually becomes. Um, we don't have time, of course, for something too <laughs> extensive, but um, why don't you share with our listeners may, may, maybe just a couple of examples of, uh, mm-hmm. of how this has been true, maybe a couple of especially telling examples of this. I mean, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. I should say here that I'm a, I'm a doctoral student in musicology, and uh, I must admit that I spent uh, far too much time researching this book in the academic library rather than working on my actual uh, studies. Um, but it really interested me that I hadn't come across any of this gendered history before I uh, sort of went into postgraduate, uh, sort of undergraduate and then postgraduate work. Um, and you start looking and suddenly it's everywhere. Um, so this idea that, you know, it's always been male versus female, sort of an oppositional category. A lot of historians um, have looked at sort of examples from the 17th century, the 18th century, you know, back into the Renaissance, further back into medieval times, and then sort of classical worlds, and then hang on a second, it's more like a ladder. So instead of being male versus female, there's sort of male at the top and female at the bottom, but you can slip up and down this ladder. So you get some very funny examples, uh, thinking particularly of sort of 18th century lives, um, where two nuns uh, were caught having an affair with each other. And that was seen as so masculine that it was believed their bodies became masculinized and they became men and had to be thrown out of the convent where they then proceeded to live as two men who were in love with each other. And this was written down in, in sort of the medical journals of the time and widely believed. Um, and I just love it. I just love that sense of sort of uh, slippage and almost sort of, um, sort of, it's almost like a fielding adventure. Um, but you start seeing it even in the 19th century, this idea that your behavior can change your physical sex body, that your idea of your gender uh, gets sort of passed through your, your physical presentation and your actions and then sort of causes your body to change in different ways. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, Laura Gowing's research if anyone has the time and inclination to look further, uh, or Catherine Ringrose is another good one to look at. But yes, it's it's exciting stuff. Hmm. Specifically in the world of opera, which uh, you and I both care a lot about, uh, you you talk about the castrati, and I think mm-hmm. most of our listeners have at least a passing acquaintance with who the castrati were. Uh, boys who would be castrated so their voices would not undergo the typical change with puberty. And so you would have fully grown men able to sing up in the treble register. And many of them, uh, the the finest singers of their day with extraordinary feats of virtuosity. And these were also very alluring figures. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I really learned from from your book uh, about this, this phenomenon of the castrati is how, in a sense, this was something that human beings created. And it's mm-hmm. as almost as though it, it speaks to an innate sense that we, we have that there, there should be more than just the simple binary. I mean, here we are, in a sense, creating 
through surgery uh, mm. a, a different kind of gender. I'd never stopped to think about how the castrati could, in a sense, represent that. Well, it, it, I mean, I, it strikes me as absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, this was, was something I focused on a lot at my undergraduate and my master's level research. Um, you know, I'm thinking uh, of there was a song ballad that was very popular in London uh, when the great alto castrato uh, Senesino was here with Handel uh, singing. And it was a ballad about how all the ladies were in love with Senesino because they couldn't tell whether he was a man or a woman or something else entirely. And it's a very long and very bawdy song. Um, but the whole point is that, that he wouldn't have been attractive if he wasn't something, a third sex or a third gender. Um, and it really gets you to think when you start reading people's sort of letters and journals, um, writing about strati, that they're talking with a real longing uh, for other than sort of male, female. And sometimes you have people writing about them in very cruel ways, um, mocking them for not being real men or real women. Uh, but then just as often you have that flip side, which is full of desire and full of a sense that they're either angels or some kind of demonic seducer, but either way, something which is not quite of the ordinary. Right. And, and of course, quite fascinating and, uh, and uh, even enchanting. Uh, exactly. I appreciate not only the way in which you uh, highlight for us some of some of uh, this issue as it has emerged in in history, uh, a lot of history which is now, of course, quite obscure or even even utterly denied. And there's a, a chapter of your book called "The Denial of of History," which actually went in in a place that I didn't really quite expect it to. But I would love for us to touch on this for a moment. What you actually are doing in this chapter, uh, at least for most of it, is carefully examining uh, a well-known and award-winning film uh, that was mm-hmm. released within the last several years called The Danish Girl, uh, starring Eddie Redmayne. And uh, I suspect a-, a lot of our listeners will know the film that I'm talking about, and I have a feeling a lot of our listeners probably like this film. I mean, it mm-hmm. received quite laudatory reviews, but this is a film with which you have a lot of issues, uh, a lot of <laughs> yes. concerns. And I so appreciate the way in which you uh, outline those concerns. And at the heart of those concerns is the carelessness with which this film uh, treats the, the historical story uh, of, uh, of, of its central protagonist. Tell us uh, a, a bit about the real-life story behind The Danish Girl and what you wish this film had done with that story. Well, I mean, I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. It feels like a missed opportunity, and maybe that's one of the reasons why the film upset me so much. So it's about uh, a woman, a trans woman called Lily Elba, and Lily Elba had been a very successful painter before she transitioned. Uh, she was married to an even more successful painter, Gerda Wegner, and I highly advise you looking up Gerda Wegner's art, but you might need to do it with a safe search on if you are at work, because some of it is quite risque. Hmm. Um, and Lily, uh, she sort of transitioned in the early 19th century. Um, she first was with the pioneering doctor Magnus Hirschfeld, who was an incredible campaigner for LGBT rights, but also broader sort of human rights uh, in pre-Nazi Germany. And uh, Lily had several operations. She eventually died because she went to see um, 
a far less qualified doctor who promised her that he could give her a uterus and she would be able to have children, which even at the time he realized that they wouldn't be able to do. Um, and after she died, several journalists uh, got hold of some of her papers, uh, not all of them, and created this book called Man into Woman. And they said it was an autobiography or a biography, a mixture of diary and, and biography. But in fact, a lot of it was mostly made up. And then that eventually got turned into a book called The Danish Girl, which eventually gets turned into a film called The Danish Girl. And my real problem with this is that in order to sell a story that we're more comfortable with now, which is that sort of trans people are tragic and that marriages will inevitably break down um, and that sort of people in earlier times were much more close-minded than they are now, um, the film and the book actually swap around some of the historical facts. Um, so crucially, early in Lily's medical treatment, um, doctors were very supportive and believed that if they used radiotherapy, which was you know, brand new, very exciting, um, they might be able to get her body to as it were, transition naturally, that if she had ovaries, which they thought she might have, that they would be stimulated by the radioactive treatment and that she would sort of naturally transition into a, a sort of more female body. Uh, and in the film, they completely reverse that because it's just not seen as being dramatic enough. So instead, uh, we have her strapped down to this table and it's it's meant to be this sort of normalizing process and, and her wife sort of says, you know, you have to do it for me, otherwise our marriage will fail. Um, and if that's the story they want to tell, I mean, fair enough, but it seems very, um, it just seems wrong to me to take a, a real life person and invert the facts of their life and essentially spread lies about what they experienced and who they were. Hmm. And I know that you you are are quite unhappy, not only with the uh, the way that the story of Lily Elba was was treated, but also the story of 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 Lily's partner uh, Gerda Wegener, uh, that that the film uh, does not do full justice uh, to who she was and how she mm. handled this uh, ultimately, of course, very very painful situation. Mm. I mean, she was she was just extraordinary. I mean, she was such an independent spirit, um, such a talented artist, and in reality, actually paid for for her partners surgeries and supported her throughout the entire treatment. Um, you can look up some of her artwork. She painted the most beautiful pictures of her and Lily together, um, where they're sort of, they're locked in an embrace and their hair colors sort of reflect their women, uh, their marriage, you know, their, their marriage bands. And the, the whole thing is really suffused with an incredible love. And, and even when they stopped being romantic partners, they were still great, great friends. Um, and the film just doesn't, doesn't show that at all. Um, and she becomes really a, a typecast character uh, who, to my mind, is very anti You know, she's a very nice woman. Brave, you know, fascinating, intelligent, complicated woman who actually lived. Hmm. Your, your discussion about this uh, is, of course, a reminder to all of us that it isn't enough to just tell these stories but it is important to tell these stories well and authentically mm -hmm. and 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 fully uh i mean that being said it it is good that these stories are are being told not not hidden away i'm reminded of some of what you have to say earlier in the book when you talk about the person who is probably the single most famous trans person uh in in all the world at the moment uh, namely Caitlyn Jenner, uh, 
who yes. <laughs> once upon a time was uh, Olympic gold medalist Bruce Jenner, the the finest decathlete of his uh, of his own generation. Um, I really appreciated the the fact that uh, you explore the way in which mainstream media tends to talk about Caitlyn Jenner and and uh, and her story. And uh, some of the themes to which media tends to gravitate and some of the ways in which the story tends to get sort of pressed and shaped mm. in a particular way to either make it more palatable uh, or to generate especially dramatic headlines. Can you just mm. say a word about some of the concerns you have about the way in which Caitlyn Jenner's story tends to be told. I mean, I think the main one for me would be the ways in which it, it brings back the idea of being trans to this very individual story. So rather than talking about uh, trans communities and broader elements of trans lives like healthcare or justice or it turns into a fairy tale maker. So you, you start off from, from one pole, if you like, one end of the gender spectrum, and you get transformed to the other, and it's all very glitzy, and it's all very surface. But it doesn't talk about the day-to-day -day lives of the majority of trans people. And by having someone like Caitlyn Jenner, who you know is incredibly rich, incredibly powerful, um, and making her the figurehead of a community which is usually below the poverty line, uh, you know, in, in a broad sort of sense, the majority of trans people have very little in the world and experience a great deal of discrimination. By having someone who is just the opposite and putting her forward as a figurehead, we're really presenting a, a false idea of what the majority of us would want to be talking about. And I think the best example I have of that is in the UK uh, a little over a month ago, I think, Channel 4, one of our main broadcasters, invited Caitlyn Jenner over to appear on a, a debate program where she was arguing with Germaine Greer. And then later they asked her to address Parliament. And, you know, in terms of parliamentary access, this is, you know, it's a big deal. And a lot of trans people have been working uh, with Parliament for an incredibly long time. Uh, and to talk to Parliament about trans lives in the UK, you know, we have scores of, of academics, we have scores of doctors, experts, people who've been working in this field for, for nearly 60 years. And Caitlyn Jenner did it, and she didn't know what she was talking about. And I'm, I'm not trying to be cruel to her here, but it was very, very odd to me that because she's a celebrity, she was given this job, which was so sensitive and required such a specialized background. But you can see that in, in broader interviews where she's asked to speak on behalf of the community that frequently she misrepresents or, or doesn't seem to have a good understanding of. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, that, that's a very, you know, I, I don't want to lay the blame at her door. I think, you know, I, I would, would turn down speaking opportunities like that and point to people who are better served. Uh, but I also think that on behalf of sort of media organizations, they have a duty to, to inform people. Right. Let's, I think... Well. I think a part of what you're saying is that uh, Caitlyn Jenner, because of of her wealth and celebrity status, is at least to some extent insulated from some of the harshest realities of being a mm. trans person, and as such, is really ill-equipped to speak to the the reality that is a part of of 
so many uh, trans lives? I, yes, I think it, it's a question of sort of when do you speak for yourself and when do you speak for other people? And obviously, you know, speaking for yourself is great and she has done some things raising raising profiles for, for other, you know, particularly youth organizations, which is also very commendable. Um, but when you're specifically tasked with talking about, uh, let's say, sort of, you know, the, the endemic combination of racism and transphobia, which results in the murder and sort of early death of so many trans people of color, it's really not appropriate to to sort of have Caitlyn Jenner doing the work there. I mean, it wouldn't be appropriate for me either. I, I would try and, and link people uh, to the scholars and the activists and the advocates who do know what they're talking about. Um, and again, it's, just, it's broader. It's broader than any one trans person. And essentially, if you want to, to learn about the realities of trans life for the majority of people, um, you should start listening to people from a wide variety of experiences rather than just one person uh, who is sort of really at, really at the top of, um, I suppose, what a, what a trans person can expect. Right. Uh, a very exceptional case rather than uh, a, a, a representative case. Yeah. I mean, I think it, essentially it would have been as absurd for the British Parliament to listen to Kim Kardashian talking about what life is like on the breadline in, you know, urban Glasgow. It, mm. It's just not... It's just a bit bizarre, really, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it speaks to a privileging of celebrity over an idea of trying to grapple with the real issues. Hmm. Uh, a couple of more points uh, I, I want us to be able to uh, to, to touch on. Briefly, I, I want to uh, acknowledge an important chapter of the book, which is titled Delusional and Disturbed. And in this chapter, you talk about the fact that... Uh, you have, uh, in your life, uh, grappled with, with mental illness. And you even tell us that you had a, a, a mental breakdown at the age of 13, which is not mm-hmm. too long before you ultimately uh, came out to your, your family and, and closest friends. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you find yourself, of course, as a very public trans person and activist for this cause, uh, needing to be very open about this reality. Uh, even at the risk of of it sort of fueling certain prejudices or mistaken assumptions that people might make that at the heart of a trans person's experience is some kind of mental or emotional deficiency that Mm -hmm. uh, is causing them to believe themselves uh, to be different than than they were born to be, so to speak. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you just say a word about uh, how difficult it was to share this aspect of yourself uh, with us in your book? I mean, I actually felt it wasn't that difficult at all, which is a really nice position to be in, I think, in my life. Um, I suppose, you know, I I had a breakdown very young, which was very difficult, uh, but it did mean that I had access to care very young, um, some really, really excellent care. And that has left me, you know, now 20 years down the line um, with a degree of stability, which I think a lot of people aren't lucky enough to have. And I really am very lucky. I count my blessings every day. Um, And it's an insider perspective as well. So I think when people do level this accusation, you know, oh, if if you say that you're trans, you're just mad, you're just delusional, you can think, no, actually, I know what it's like (laughs) to um, to be really quite mentally ill. It's not the same at all. 
you know, it really just isn't. And the people saying that have have no awareness of what they really are talking about. I think it's this stigmatization of mental illness, uh, the idea that mentally ill people are, are deficient and, and can't talk about our own experiences, uh, and then sort of thinking that being trans is something, again, uh, degenerate or or just insane. It's pointing out that the World Health Organization uh, does not consider being trans a mental illness. You know, that the people who are experts in this field most certainly do not see being trans as, as a mental illness. But at the same point, mental illness itself should not be treated as if it's something shameful or dirty. It's, it's an illness. And some of us, you know, can be treated uh, with, with great skill and great care. And that should be available for everybody. Mm-hmm. You write uh, in this chapter, there is no doubt that dealing with transphobia and dysphoria have added to my emotional burdens, but they are not the same as the aching pain and concurrent nothingness of a low, finding oneself unable to get off the floor from an impossible mixture of emptiness and agony. Uh, Those tears did not come from the same place. Uh, And and I, I had not stop to think about that but in a sense the fact that you have experienced actual mental illness and I think to some extent continue to to grapple with that reality mm-hmm. in a sense <laughs> helps you see and you can in turn help us see how in fact uh, your experience as a trans person in a sense has nothing to do with the other I mean mm-hmm. you, you know that more than anybody possibly could well, I, th- I think many of us do know it, and I think many of us know the fact that other people's cruelty can make our depression worse. You know, it, I'm not going to lie. If I'm if I'm in a depressive low, and someone spits at me in the street or says something horrendous to me online and tells me to kill myself, it's not going to improve my mood. You know, I'm not right. going to uh, suddenly suddenly feel reinvigorated there. Um, but that's not being trans. That's other people's transphobia, and I do find it very important to draw a distinction there uh, between the two things. You know, of course, we, we talk as if other people's cruelty and countless inevitable. Um, but it's really not. And I think when we when we take away that element of uh, either, you know, misunderstanding and ignorance or the or the, sort of the more painful flip side of deliberate cruelty, um, you know, a lot of trans people would not have the mental mental burden that, that we do sort of labor under. Mm-hmm. I want to finish uh, in our just last minute and a half or so with something at the very top of the book called The Production of Ignorance, a very interesting concept and, in a sense, one that your book is very much trying to combat. Uh, Explain what The Production of Ignorance is. Well, I was introduced uh, to The Production of Ignorance through musicology, so another another win for music here. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea that we can... It's not only that we lack information about something. So let's talk about women composers. Uh, so it's not only the fact that we can go, oh, were there any women composers? Were there any women composers as good as Bach or Beethoven? It's the fact that a lot of us were taught that there weren't. So you're not just ignorant of something. You've been given uh, a misinformation instead. So when it comes to trans people, it's not so much that a lot of people have never heard of trans people. It's what they think they know about trans people is not actually correct. So we have to correct the uh, the misapprehensions before we can start talking openly and honestly with each other. Mm. 
Well, I so deeply appreciate the way in which your book helps us think about this experience from so many different angles, including uh, in terms of the difference that public policy can make, the special challenges faced by parents uh, with children who find themselves uh, experiencing themselves as trans, uh, a long historical view and, and hopes for the future. Uh, I mean, there is so much to, uh, to take in and, and, uh, and, 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 and deeply consider in your fascinating book, Trans Like Me, Conversations for All of Us, published by Seal Press. The author, C.N. Lester. C.N. Lester, I thank you profoundly for being part of the morning show, and thank you for giving the world this really important book. Thank you so, so much for your very kind words, and I hope you have a wonderful day.